Welcome to the Liberty Portal podcast by libertyportal.com, your gateway to a free society. On this show, we examine current events through a libertarian lens, seeking truth, cracking jokes, and providing you with better arguments to advocate for a freer world. The show is hosted by David Rand, political strategist and philosophy nerd widely known as the devil of Montana politics. Henri Pellerin, Liberty Portal founder and editor, entrepreneur, and fitness enthusiast. And myself, Joe Sheehan, filmmaker and Liberty Portal producer. Okay, well, let's get into it. Uh, what, David, you kick us off. What do you want to talk about first today? Oh, man. You know, uh, I do. I think I think talking about Davos would be a lot of fun. Okay. You know, I mean, like, what's it about? What is it? I mean, there's a lot of people who don't really know much about it. So I'm not an expert in it. Mm, yep, uh, but I do know a little bit about kind of some of the policies that have rolled out of things like Davos, these kind of large financial institution stuff. Well, so the Davos, the World Economic Forum is going on right now, correct? And uh, that's obviously over in Davos, Switzerland. This is what little I know of it. Uh, it seems like, you know, on the outside, it's sort of a uh, collection of world leaders, political, industrial, et cetera, who kind of get together and share their thoughts and ideas on how to shape the future of the world, which on the surface seems rather innocuous or even beneficial. But it does seem like some of the ideas that come out of there are uh, a little less than well-intentioned, perhaps, for the rest of us, right? Like, I think the famous... The thing that really put the WF on the map last year was the the Great Reset narrative surrounding COVID. I guess this might have even been two years ago. And then, uh, of course, the Own Nothing and Be Happy blog article that was mm-hmm. written on their website. So imagine for a moment that the logistics capability that we've seen increase so substantially over the last couple of years. In the 1990s, a lot of our economic growth was actually in logistics, moving goods around the country more efficiently, specifically in what was called no storage uh, logistics, where you move from truck to truck or truck or from the manufacturer to warehouse to the retailer much more efficiently. Walmart's growth over that time represents a tremendous amount of the total growth of the United States when it comes to our GDP and ability to just to move things around more cheaply, more affordably, more efficiently. A lot of that came together because of increases in technology, information systems, and stuff like that. But then we saw another like quantum leap in this when it came to Uber uh, specifically once we moved out of Uber, moving people around to moving goods and services around. So the idea, probably steel manned as strongly as I can, is that if you take that growth curve of logistics becoming hyper-efficient and you just kind of plot that out further enough, further, for, far enough, you could say, okay, does it make more sense for me to own a drill and spend 150 bucks, or to spend $10 to get a drill every time I need it? Most of the life of a drill, a little hand drill that I use to hang stuff in my house or put something together, as a non-professional, just sits around, right? Uh, most of its life is not being used. But if I can very quickly and easily get one when I need one within 10 minutes, say five minutes, something like that, maybe a reasonable wait time. Sure. Even if it's an hour without leaving my home and I get a professional quality drill for a fraction of the cost, and my over my lifetime, I actually spend less money on drills. And on top of that, I never have to worry about the battery. I never have to worry. Right. So I see w- the, where you're coming from on this is that it's sort of the ubiquitization, if that's a word, of the subscription economy. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't have nearly as much ownership of lots of stuff, but you would still have access to the things that those things create because- you would rent it rather sure. than own it. Sure. I do think that is like the more generous interpretation of what that article was actually saying. Well, it's actually based yeah. upon the work of a Duke University economics professor. And right. uh, Don Boudreau, uh, host of EconTalk, interviewed him long before the Davos thing happened. And that's the first time I heard about it. I was like, that's a really interesting idea. 
could totally be the future. And I'm from a philosophical point of view, not sure that I see any problem with it. Well, I certainly don't. In fact, if I think perpetrated or carried carried out by private entities, right, by private private people, hmm. say renting out the tools that you have in your garage that your neighbor might not need to own because he can just rent them from you or vice versa, um, it can be extrapolated to a lot of different industries. And that's great. I mean, hmm. that's awesome. It's a great way to turn idle assets into, you know, cash flow, which is awesome. Hmm. But I do think that the article and the intent behind it does go a bit broader and deeper right Henri? i mean i i think i think on the one hand they were trying to get people's attention by saying something sort of provocative i do think that what the article was actually saying is along the lines of what david is saying it's basically the uberization of everything in the future you're you're going to have access to stuff you're just not going to own it and then you're not going to have the headache of owning stuff i mean you know renting in a lot of ways is a lot you know, renting your home, for example, is a lot less of a hassle sometimes than actually owning a home. For sure. Um, but at the same time, from a philosophical perspective, you know, when I when I see that headline, the first question that pops into my mind was like, well, am I still going to own myself? Right. I mean, because self-ownership is so you know, integral to a free society and to a libertarian perspective. That that to me is is where I think there is something insidious within that. There's a world of difference between the economy has become so efficient. We have these tools that become so efficient that we could you do more with less, save everyone money, and live a higher quality of life. If you just forecast that out, that actually forecasts the the 20th and 19th centuries. That's what we did. We used less things, less inputs, and got more out of it. A car running at 70 miles an hour in 1960 put out more CO2 than a car idling in a driveway today. That's called intensification. That's a good thing. Driving intensification further is a good thing, depending if you force it on society, which is what I think people are associating the WEF as. These are all things that are going to become government policy, which are going to make the world a worse place. And it is what's, what's interesting and difficult about this area is it's hard to tease apart what's government policy and what is the result of freely acting individuals deciding things that I would prefer them not to do? So if I want to own everything, I don't own my drill, and I don't want to, no one's saying I don't. I haven't seen the WEF or anyone say we're going to ban the ownership of things. What we've seen is that we won't need to own things, which is a very different question. And and according to values, right? If people have a value of owning things; they should still be able to do that. Now, if everyone decided not to do it, it became very difficult to buy a drill because there just were less drills because everyone rented them then. That's the consequences of living in a free society where people made decisions different from your values. What should we do about that? Should we use government to change that? I don't think so. Certainly not. Yeah. So I, I, so I guess it's the, complicated. The other question is, uh, who is going to own things? Is it going to be mega corporations or is it going to be the government? If it's not individuals, I mean, can I still start a business and can I own that? Mm-hmm. Right? Can I, I assume that I assume uh, I, what I assume is in the best, most terrible case scenarios. Yes, you, you, you'll be able to. But maybe you won't do it nearly on the scale that you currently do. So, and is that by market or by governmental decree? Yeah, right. Uh, I, I, yeah, that's the question. That's ultimately the question for me. That's what makes it either something I'm really worried about or something I'm like, well, we'll see. You know, if it's if it's we're going like ESG, we're going to force this down your throat using government policy, which is with so there are connections in ESG with government policy that are concerning and and real. Yeah. Well, it's uh, not just government policy. It's it's individual activists taking over and influencing companies from from outside of mm-hmm. government as well mm-hmm. to do things that 
you know, government actors would, would probably like them to do, but it's, you know, it's the, the B corporation is a, is an independent certification organization that, you know, you can get B corp certified if you adhere to the tenets of all this ESG stuff. And it's, it's a lot of just everything that, you know, for lack of a better term, the, the woke activists, the, the people on the left have been advocating for forever. So I, I see that as a, as a pretty harmful thing. I, but I also think that people are starting to push back on that naturally. So I don't know that it's, it's, uh, something that we need to lose sleep over at the, at this point. But. Yeah. It's, it's a funny thing because right? we're, we're not, well, to be clear, we are not making a statement that libertarianism means you can't do ESG or you can't have a future where there's renting more than owning. Whatever. I think what we're saying is that you should use your speech to say, wait, should my company or should this thing that I control or should the public or should you, if I'm giving out advice, invest based upon social values or both based upon what returns the most to the investor? Which of those two things should I, should I navigate and negotiate? Well, and also I think if you, if you really, um, there's a book called Valuation that was written by the, the Kinsey group. So a, a bunch of different contributors to the book. Um, and there's an other chapter in there on ESG. And if you read that, even as a libertarian, it's sort of like, oh, that's not so bad. You know, like really it's, it's, it's kind of this flowery, flowery language about, you know, we just want to do what's good for the worker and what's good for society. And what's good for the environment and this, that, and the other, I think what is lost in, and then all of this stems out of this idea of stakeholder capitalism, which means, you know, rather than just the, the actual owners of the property, there are these stakeholders that have a stake in your company, even if they don't own stock in the company, because, you know, they have to still live in that community or breathe that air or potentially rely on those jobs. And what is lost in all of this on, on, from that perspective, in my opinion, is that if you allow the market to work, all of those goals are, are achieved anyway. The, the market does work towards better environments and better working conditions and better communities. And if you allow the activists to get interfere with the market function, I think it at best is going to delay the market's ability to provide what, you know, these outcomes that, that we're all seeking. Um, so, yeah, I agree. I mean, like one of the things that I see is free speech is a tool for delivering information and correcting errors. Right. So ESG becomes a major issue. Everyone's talking about it. The people who join in say, Hey, I think this is a bad idea for these, for these reasons. Maybe these are bad aims and use their speech to stop other people from doing free things, freely, freely enabled things with their own money. That's, that's all within our vision. That's all a spontaneously ordered process that's happening. Now, just because it's spontaneously ordered doesn't mean it's good, right? It just means that this is the free choice of individuals, good or bad, and we're going to allow that, that system to work. The other side of that is when it, once it touches government policy, such as when your state government is taxing you and then intentionally not, not getting the best return for your tax dollar with its investments, but rather instead uh, using it for a social agenda that maybe doesn't fit your values. That is where I think we have something very clearly, okay, this is where we're triggering our philosophy of what is the just use of, of force and government. 
For sure. And just for the edification of those listening who maybe don't know what ESG is, stands for environmental social governance, sort of a investment model that subscribes to doing um, social and environmental good with those dollars invested. Right. Um, so if you had another one that was like, here's a different set of values and we're going to invest based upon those values, would everyone be freaking out as much about it? Open question. If the values was like, hey, the, we're only going to, it's a Christian investment firm and we're only going to invest in Christian investments. And there's only, only good moral standing up Christians are going to get our money. Now, now give to us. Our returns are on the market average. We're not better than anyone else. We're not worse than anyone else, but we only do our money that way. Would everyone be, be mad if Christian people decided to give money to them? I mean, I'm sure there would be some uproar about it. Yeah, a bit. I'm, I'm sure there would be pushback from the left on that. Like, yeah. No question about it. Yeah, but would there be would, would there be anger about the fact that people can freely do that? No, I don't think so. Everyone well, I, would, I think everyone would assume, like, yeah, people should be able to invest the way they want to. I don't have a specific citation, but I, I want to say that there is something that's not Christian oriented, but it is mm. sort of pushback to ESG, right? It's like mm. the, the opposite. Really? And I'm trying to remember what it is. I'll, I'll uh, superimpose it here if I can find it. If not, I'm going to cut this out. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, um, yeah. you know, I think that's great. You know, if, if you don't want to invest in ESG stocks or uh, funds, that don't, mm. right? But yeah, it is a different story if like your pension fund is doing so because it feels some sort of social moral obligation to do that or there's pressure from activists who want that money to be invested that way. Um, but there are a lot of states and I, I noticed in this, this article uh, where Larry Fink is talking about you know, how he's, he's so, um, you know, disheartened by the demonized ESG narrative, Larry Fink being the CEO of BlackRock, one of the world's largest investment firms. Um, there are a number of states that have taken actions targeting entities, um, boycotting certain industries. Um, they have restricted the use of ESG factors. Some have um, promoted divestment from certain industries. You know, there's a handful that are, that are actively integrating ESG, but there are a bunch that have actually started to use their state authorities to discourage that, which I guess on its face is sort of anti-libertarian in a sense, right? If you want to invest in those things, you, you should be able to. Yeah. Let, let the market decide. I do think that there's, there's more than just, you know, a, a market organic market push for this kind of thing. I mean, I think, I don't think that shareholders are asking for it i think that it's it's activists who are closely aligned with government entities who are promoting and propagating propagating these ideas do you think that corporate america uh, decided to really jump on aggressively with black lives matter because they thought it would increase their portfolio or because or because they actually believe in the agenda of defund the police i, I mean i think they did it for social cred you know to right. which would give them market share Right. But did it? Oh, I, I think, I don't know. I, I think that was their aim though, right? They felt a sense of, dis, of uh, discomfort. We're going to use Mises as human action model real quick. They had a sense of discomfort. They were like, wow, there's a big social movement going. What do we do about it? I have a future state where I'm, that I'm trying to avoid, which is one where we are seen as not helping. And, and I don't want to be there because that we'll lose market share. People won't buy our products. We'll get, we'll get blown up on Twitter, et cetera. And then there's another one where we take advantage of this opportunity to come across looking good. And that to me, even though I, it, whether or not I agree with the message is off the point. The point is, is, is it okay that companies do that? Should we have, should we give companies a free speech and availability to be able to make that space for themselves? Uh, and whether it's ESG, Black Lives Matter or any of these things, 
I don't know. I can't distinguish between someone saying an activist saying, I believe this and you should go do this. And then them listening versus not right. Cause that activist has free speech too. They, they have the right to go do that. Well, absolutely. And these outcomes are all us. Absolutely. I think we see the outcomes. I mean, you look at a company like Disney, you know, injecting all of this sort of woke morality into their programming for kids. I mean, you had a huge pushback and whether or not it was correlated, their stock did go down. I think a lot of people probably did unsubscribe from Disney Plus and stop engaging with the brand. Same with Netflix when the whole thing blew up around Dave Chappelle doing his, for whatever reason, you know, uh, stand up that was thought to be controversial. And right. really, I think if you watched it and took his message to heart, it was nothing of the sort. But, mm-hmm. you know, you definitely saw backlash there. I think people are voting with their attention and their dollars on these issues and, and well, they should, right? Mm-hmm. I think these are things that sort themselves out. If we keep a cool head, we be mature about it, and we just kind of take a step back and not get too drawn into the drama of the moment. Right. Uh, and that's and, I, and my biggest one of my criticisms, I think, is a lot of times there's a lot of panic, a lot of oh goodness, how do we how do we make sure that the other side can't advance when it shouldn't be that. If if you want, if you think if you think there's something that deserves speech about it to stop it from happening, go do that thing. Like go create something entrepreneurial. Go speak. Go make that happen. Uh, rather than saying, oh man, we really need this. This is, it, it's a matter of proportion. I'm so much less worried about ESG than I am the genocide in Yemen. Right. Sure. Or I am about the federal, the federal reserve and the deficit or social security. It, it's a matter of, of proportion and perspective, in my opinion, because, because these are often the results of just free people just doing their thing, being entrepreneurial, whether it's the WEF who have rights to be able to say, this is what we think the future should look like. That's you really okay. Bugs. I know, right? They live in zip bugs. That guy's creepy. That guy's super creepy. I got the, the dress, the, the like the, the tunic. Yeah, the tuna, a tunic. Is that the, what like, it is? Evil warlord tunic. Right, man. Like, pointy <laughs> shoulders. Oh, man. Yeah, it is so crazy. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I don't get what's going on there. I'm not saying I'm a fan of it. All I'm saying is that those people also have rights to be able to articulate what they think of the future. And the best use of libertarian time, I think, and that and people who support freedom is to use our speech to be able to say, well, I have a different vision. Um, and just because they're rich and powerful and big and strong actually doesn't, doesn't get them that far, right? If people speak up about it. In some cases, it just gets them mocked mercilessly on yeah. Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yep. That is very true. Um, do you guys, did you ever watch Top Gear? Yeah. A little bit. It's a great show. So you know Jeremy Clarkson? Yeah. Like the main host. He loves the zesty beverages as well. Does he really? There's oh. like a meme about he's always reaching for a zesty bev. Or, oh yeah. really oh, oh that's yeah right. I think it's, it's, like, like, it's like one of his catch lines that's awesome well get time for a sponsor read. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by our friends at zesty beverages they're on a mission to un the standard american diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food their lineup of delicious offerings now includes electric peak yerba mate postbiotic sodas keto friendly ready to drink margaritas and hard teas wondering what a postbiotic soda is well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. So Jeremy Clarkson, I don't know if you guys saw this, but uh, you know how he got canceled before? He got kicked off Top Gear originally because um, he had some sort of altercation with a producer where he used some, like a racial slur. Uh, I, think, I believe the gentleman was from was uh, was Muslim or something like that. And he said something he shouldn't have said. He got booted off the show, right? And then they started Grand Tour on Amazon. Well, Jeremy Clarkson just tweeted something or made a statement about uh, Meghan Markle, um, something about how he really hates her. And 
he has dreams about uh, her in the scene from Game of Thrones where she's paraded naked through the streets of Britain and people fling poo at her. And so he, uh, well, he, he got in trouble for that and got canceled from Amazon. Um, so this, that's twice. He got canceled twice, which I think might be a record for cancellations. For cancellations. I mean, I don't know. We'll have to, we'll have to do a tally. Did he but, get canceled because he referenced an HBO Go show? Is that what it is? I don't know. I think I, I'm I pretty. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the backlash was around uh, Angela how, Merkel. How his like the Angela no no no, no. Who, Meghan, Markle. Meghan Markle. Meghan Markle. Meghan oh, yeah. Markle. You said that, but Prince my, I was like the Germany. I don't no. understand <laughs> why why he has such strong opinions. <laughs> I see. Okay. No, I I believe the the um, backlash was about uh, how his statements, his speech, were going to 100 create violence against women. And I think it's an interesting point to bring up because it's like right now there's this conflation of speech as violence. There's this uh, attitude that if you say something, it is it may result in violent behavior. Therefore, the speech is in and of itself violence. And I'd like to chat with you guys about that because it's coming up time and time and time again. Is speech violence? Post hoc ergo propter hoc. Right. The rooster crowed. And then the sun came up. So therefore, the crowing caused the sun to come up, right? That's, that's often the arrow I see when people actually try to connect it to anything specific. Um, I think injury in general, and in common law, in like our evolved state of law, uh, I'm sorry, I'm like way away from, I'm doing all kinds of things on the mic today. You're great. No, you're good. It, it typically requires an injury in order to get compensation. So your limitation on your freedom happens after you harm somebody. And that that creates is a bias towards liberty where people can explore ways to serve one another and live a life according to their own values as long as they don't harm someone else. And if they harm someone else, then they have to go through this process where they get their liberty limited in an important way. Fine, jail time, whatever that is, right? The problem with preempting that so bad things don't happen in the first place is knowledge. How do you know when you're doing something important that should have happened, but didn't happen because you've created the conditions in which it won't in the first place. So um, I think, I think that's the baseline. We should start there and discuss from there as a, not this podcast, but as a society, we should start with like, okay, should we just preempt everything that might cause bad outcomes or should we have a system that presumes Liberty and then punishes people for bad outcomes because the world is complicated and we can't know ahead of time what the right things are to say, what the right things are to do, how to produce and serve and realize our own values in the world, except for in a state of freedom. For sure. It seems like the logical conclusion of the first scenario where we limit everything that might cause harm, create the broadest possible definition of harm, sort of just creates like a social padded room that everybody has to live in and that there's no sharp corners on anything, nothing to allow us to sort of make mistakes and discover what's bad and what's good what's acceptable, what's unacceptable from a social standpoint. I'll take it even yeah. worse. It's even worse than that. It's the, it's the greatest tyranny you can imagine because nothing would ever change, ever. Because all risk is too high, right? If your risk tolerance is 100% or is at zero, you have no ability to distinguish between things that help and would, and would do better in the future versus things that wouldn't. So whatever money you make now is the money you're going to make forever. Whatever, whoever's on top is always going to be on top. Whoever's on the... The ability to, uh, to create value for each other, there's no, no new problems are ever solved. That is terrible for the human condition. 
So the the in the in the in the realm of speech, what, what's at stake when we're talking about risk to someone's safety is in order to articulate and discover truth, you have to have the ability to make mistakes and to be able to be risky. And what I struggle with in this space is is this idea that any amount of risk taking is just too much. Uh, and be, because you can make an argument, a post hoc ergo proctor hoc after the fact, I said this and then something bad happened to somebody that may or may not have been related. And we're just going to associate those two things that are completely unrelated. Can I mean, you say uh, that again? The state, the statement post hoc ergo proctor hoc proctor proctor hoc. I say proctor sometimes proctor hoc proctor Latin. Nice. One more time. Post hoc ergo proctor hoc. Got it. Yeah. I, I do think also the you'll you'll see that argument taken to another extreme where it's it's actually not that your your speech is going to incite somebody to you know throw a punch at me, but your speech offended me, and that is the that is violence in and of itself, and it's a it's a it's so hypocritical because you know this side will never you know point that argument towards I don't know the constant criticism of toxic masculinity or something like that, for example. I mean, we're expected to just kind of sit there and take it. But if we have a well-reasoned argument that goes against something that they hold, you know, as a belief causes some kind of cognitive dissonance, they get mad. They think, therefore, you are a bad person because you made them mad. And, and that's like an injury in a sense that, you know, some kind of internalized trauma that they had to get upset. And the worst part about that is what they miss out on, right? What you miss out on with that sensitivity. Uh, I kind of think of it like exposure, right? Uh, or, or muscle growth. The more you interface with ideas, the more you're going to come across ideas that are opposed to yours. And the more you have to work with those ideas and understand them, the stronger you get. Just right. like if I go to the gym the first few times, it's really difficult. I feel awkward. I feel like everyone's looking at me. All those kind of like social hangups. The weight's heavy, et cetera. But then the more I go, the easier it becomes. And the, and the more stronger I get, the more confident I become. And the more, the, 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 my range of ability increases. My range of being able to realize into the world good things for myself and for others increases. So uh, it's, it's a huge loss, not just for the social order, which misses out on people, uh, on shield speech of people not saying the things that they otherwise would say because they're afraid they're going to be accused of harming somebody when that's never their intention. They're not trying to do that. But also um, to the person who is shutting down the speech, they never grow the tolerance to ideas to to become more sophisticated about the world and about truth, the 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 dip, the, the difficult texture of the world that's so complicated. Yeah, I actually liken it very similarly to your analogy of muscle growth to like building calloused hands, right? Like you might, uh, if you're into rock climbing, for example, the first time you go to the climbing gym or go climbing. Outdoors, like your hands are going to be destroyed. But the more you do it, the higher you can climb, the more difficult routes you can do. You know, you gain that ability and that sort of tolerance, like you say, to grapple with more and more difficult challenges as you go. And like society needs that. Like what we don't need is a bunch of infants who, you know, get confronted with the first, you know, argument that challenges their worldview, fall down and scrape their knee and, and then just start bawling. Right. I mean, like that's just not going to get humans anywhere from here. Imagine trying to do jujitsu without discovering. We're trying to play basketball without sweating. I mean, it's like, it's like, these are the things we're requiring people, but we're applying it to speech. Yeah. Right. Like, like, like we're applying it to ideas where ideas are repulsive and outside the bounds. And that's, that's the difference. Uh, um, if you're doing philosophy, 
what you're what you're not doing is setting bounds on things and just arbitrarily decide, well, I'm not going to go there, right? If a, a true philosopher is in the space of saying, I can't know everything I need to know unless I'm open to the things I don't know. Uh, and that kind of hubris to think, I know exactly what people should and shouldn't talk about. Not only it damages society and it damages the person themselves. And that's the narrative that I think has control over a lot of our society today, whether it's, you know, the public domain or the private domain. It's the ESG people who are pushing that kind of idea as well. Um, to take it in a slightly different direction, I do think there is a misconception of free speech as a, a right. I mean, it's free speech is a right that we that we have through legislative, you know, it's a it's a constitutional right, but it's not a natural right. Would you agree with that? Yes, because it depends on it, it depends on the context of the speech, meaning in the sense of if you're on my property, there are certain bounds to your exactly. speech that are natural to my property. So if you're on my property, you insult me. Exactly. I can say you you must leave. And you can't say, well, you're infringing on my free speech. You're like, well, you don't have a right on my right. property. You don't have a right to come to my house and insult my mother. Right. 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 You know, I can kick you out. Right. And or you don't have a right to come to my house and say, let's have a fight. You know, and then get mad if I throw a punch at you. And that's, and that's why the tech regulation thing was always a difficult navigation spot, right? And it's become even more difficult as we realize that the FBI and these government agencies were all in the mix to this whole thing, suppressing one side and choosing another and, and all that stuff where it becomes very like, okay, that doesn't mean we should get rid of private property rights. Well, that probably means we need to restrain intelligence agencies from trying to exercise influence over the private sector so they can control the narrative in America. That should be what everyone's takeaway. At, well, everyone who cares about this issue from the right should be taking away from. Everything gets convoluted by the mere existence of the state. Like everything is, is, is neither a good or a bad thing essentially on its own. It's always the marriage of, of the state and this other thing that turns it into an insidious thing. You know, like the church, for example, the church is great on its own. The, the com combination of church and state, huge problem, right? Same thing with, with literally anything you want to talk about, but it's when you're talking about natural rights, it always comes back to a, a form of property rights. You own yourself and everything emanates out from that. Uh, that's a natural right. You can't unown yourself, right? That's why slavery is wrong. One of the right? one of the one of the podcasts that came out this week was Jocko Willick's Unraveling podcast. I highly recommend everyone check it out because it it dives into the social media thing in a very interesting and different direction. But one of the things that I think it makes a good point about is how power. It, it, uh, my conception of power, I think the general libertarian conception of power is is, is that. It, what really matters is the atoms that force you to do things in the real world, right? The hard power. But what also matters is when people change the calculus for ideas, that that has political implications in a statist reality, right? Where, where what we have is a large state who wants to control everything, and it has been for some time. So one of the interesting things, we have this new technology, social media, that has done a really amazing job at saying we can be much more efficient at delivering messages to people that change their mind. Right. Or mobilize them or get them angry or whatever, or create a result that I'm looking for. A politician is going to find that incredibly important to control. It would be like in the time of the, of the printing press, all of a sudden, you know, uh, the, the state trying to control printing presses, same story, just on a much larger, much more detailed scale. So 
I, I it's it's a it's a situation where some people will hear that truth, hear that reality, and say, well, therefore the state needs to control it and control it from my tribe. The difference, the root of the comparative advantage in the idea space that I think free society supporters are have is what our position is that the that that temptation should be dropped as low as possible so that the state is confined to just the thing that the state can do and that you know things like social media should be confined to things that social media can do which is talk to people and connect people allow those things to happen it's when those two things intermingle that it gets difficult um and i'm just trying to get to the same thing you're saying in a different direction yeah Yeah. totally well you know going back to something that that you said on Henri uh about you can't unown yourself i'm curious how uh things like these dna sequencing services work in the context of self-ownership right like you have 23andme for example or any of the myriad of ones that i think in their terms of service say they own like the information that they gather right like which would technically mean like they own the sequence of your personal dna how how does that how how do we approach that well i mean like i could i could unown my kidney right but i can't disassociate from my consciousness that's what i'm saying as far as you can't unown yourself right right Right? i think i'm speaking more to like just the the legal side of biometric data self-ownership it's a complicated issue it's very complicated yeah if you go onto someone else's property and they take your picture is it do you own that picture that's your biometric data true so it's i mean if you're on their property i would say yeah you've consented to the conditions of their property right now when it comes to 23 me it's like you've literally hired a photographer to take your pictures and give it to them and then they keep one and they gave you one you sign that contract it seems like you can there has to be a way to mark to be able to do that right it's it's unintuitive for us it's important to understand legal systems are an evolutionary phenomena they arise up from base principles we can discuss those base principles but those are oftentimes we have actual institutions that arise via court and competition and things like that. Then we look back and we say, oh, here's the base principle that gets, gets to it that we're articulating. You guys are familiar with this? This is Hayek's law, legislation, and liberty. It's his argument that laws, as we currently understand, the English common law was der- derived from a competitive system, right? So whether or not the sheep crossed the you know, farmer's land and into someone else's, how big of an injury is that? Is that establishing those property rights? Those happen in a competitive situation where courts were deciding, you know, what what is good, what is what keeps social harmony together. How do we how do we make sure there's justice in that when, situation? When you say competitive, do you mean there were multiple courts? Yeah, I mean a literal competitive court system of mostly private court systems in England uh, and across Northern Europe at the time uh, of the Middle Age. Uh, well, uh, what we now call the Middle Ages, no longer the Dark Ages, too. Uh, um, how did yeah. those courts come to be? Oh, d- demand. <laughs> for justice <laughs> really that simple i mean i mean that's I'm fascinated by this because it's yeah. it, it you know it really ties into the libertarian idea of privatized courts and how that would work like so that is actually a historical precedent yeah that existed that's where the english common law comes from no yeah. kidding right so monarchical law was placed on top of that and it was much more influenced by the roman system that was much more top down and centralized and like we're going to divine as great thinkers the right laws uh and what hayek actually is his thesis is that what you want is like actually a combination of both what you want is the law to evolve out of the court system and then the legislation to embody the law to reduce transaction costs so that people it's very clear about what the rules are and that's where we get the idea of property rights was people discovering them through a process and then backtrack now going back to biometric data we have a new industry this is a new thing that didn't exist i mean you, photographs are new comparably you know to True. 
the age of common law. So what we're trying to do is a, apply a very practical question of um, biometric data to a very old system of property rights. And we're saying, okay, how do we sort this thing out? Do I own it? When do I not own it? Now, let me give you another hard case example. You uh, buy a phone and it tracks your gait, how you walk, and can then judge whether or not you have your phone or not. It's an anti-theft device. Do they need to, how much permission should the phone company get from you to, to get, acquire that data? Well, they should certainly ask you, may we track this thing about you? Right. right? And how do you create the systems in which that happens where you don't kill innovation? That's the difficult policy legal question. Does that make sense? Where we, where we require consent to what's important to us, but we don't stifle innovation at the same time. We make sure there's a trade-off there. Because many, many bills that try to do biometric data, privacy, security, make sure it's, it is voluntarily given, actually end up making things worse when it comes to innovation. Uh, and Why there's a couple that? examples of that. I didn't have to go pull it. It's been a while since I've thought about this particular topic. Hmm. Well, maybe, we, yeah, we should circle back to it in the future because I don't personally see why consent would create a you know, stifling effect innovation. I mean, other than, yes, you just wouldn't get like the purest, largest sample. Right. Right. But I don't think that there's a scenario in my head where I could say, you know, a company or any entity should be granted the use of someone's personal information or uh, property right. without their consent. So, so right now, in it, it, you can't really find cases where people don't sign an EULA for biometric data acquisition, right? Those contracts exist because the companies have legal liability if they don't have them. The, then it gets into the question of, do those contracts actually inform the person of what they're giving up? That's a very difficult question because, right, is at some point you're just nannying that individual. You're saying people are too dumb to read contracts, so therefore we shouldn't have contracts or something, something ridiculous like that. So... um there, but there have been efforts in state legislatures. I think Indiana was one, but I'll, don't quote me there. I'll, I'll have to circle on, and we can talk about this more some other time. But the state level policy that's been trying to address in this space, and it's it's more complicated and more difficult to implement than you'd think. Uh, but w- what I ultimately see in this is a result of the order that we are in, right? Of, of the spontaneous order process where we are trying to build an understanding of where is that line between what I own and what you own, and what you need a contract to acquire, and what I don't need a contract to require. Does For that sure. make sense? Yep. Yep. I guess before we wrap it up, I, I do want to just throw a shout out to Michael Malice's new book, The White Pill, which I just got uh, yesterday. So I haven't read it yet, but I, uh, I'm going to have some time this weekend to crack it open. Um, very much looking forward to it. Um, it's about sort of the, the rise and fall of the Soviet Union. Um, and if you've ever read any of uh, Malice's books before, uh, you could expect it to be very informative. It's going to teach you things, even if you're familiar with the situation that you probably never could have imagined. So maybe I'll have more to say about it uh, next time we get together, but um, just excited, excited to read this. Heck yeah. yeah. Looking forward to a review. Yeah. Thanks guys. Yeah. Bye. Thanks everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. For more episodes, news, and Liberty-focused content, visit libertyportal.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you liked what you heard on the show, we appreciate you sharing it with your friends and giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice.